Okay. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys out there, out there online, wherever you are in the world. Um, welcome. Glad that you guys are here. Um, this is going to be, if you're just joining us for the first time, you won't notice anything different. But this will be a little bit of an unusual service in the way that um, I'm a little off today. Um, I'm glad Pastor Gabe got the emotional part of it out of the way. Um, I can't promise that I won't go there too. 15 years of, of ministry and just thinking about all the, all the lives that this body has touched. All of, the, all of the lives changed through the things that this body has done and that this wonderful building has been able to facilitate and been a gathering place for that to happen. My prayer is that that just continues um, at tenfold at the new building. You know, we saw, you go all the way back to the Exodus, and you see the Israelites wandering the desert for 40 years, picking up and packing up camp and moving. Um, they didn't put down roots. When God said it's time to move, they just moved because there was something better, and God knew he was moving them towards, towards their ultimate promise. And, and we have to trust that that's what God is doing with us. We are packing up camp, and it looks like it. If you, it doesn't look like it so much in here, but if you go out there... It looks like we're packing up camp, getting ready to move, and that's what we're doing. So I just pray that you guys um, follow us over there because God has something really amazing planned. I know it. He has ordained this move in just amazing ways. The first couple weeks over there, uh, my message, we're going to set aside Mark for just a little bit, and we're just going to teach about the goodness of God, the goodness of God and his provision and the miracles that had to happen to make this move happen. And so it wasn't just something we said, hey, what the heck, let's move. Um, it was far from that. So, um, so yeah, I hope you join us next week. Pastor Gabe touched on it. We're going to have after service next week over at the new location, we are going to have a big cookout, barbecue, potluck, bring stuff. Um, we're just going to hang out for as long as we feel like hanging out. And just enjoy the new building and enjoy each other and, and just fellowship. And let's just walk around the building and pray and do all those things that we want to do, right? So sketch out some time. Please try to be there. Join us. It's going to be an amazing time. And we want to kick everything off in the right way. Um, another thing really quick. We have had, you know, when you're packing things up and you're getting ready to move, it just seems like whenever God is preparing to do something amazing, for his people, other things always come in. And, and we have the opportunity, those attacks that come from Satan, some of them are flat-out attacks from Satan. Some of them are things that just happen in life. And then Satan comes in and says, see, I did that. He wants to take credit for all those things to try and steal the joy from what's coming your way. And I don't want to let that happen, but I do want to acknowledge there have been, Pastor Gabe said it, there are people here going through some, some hurt. There are, people, um, there are people who have experienced a loss. I just I want to let you know, and I asked him if it was okay. Uh, Eric and, and Molly, um, Eric's mother, passed away last night. Uh, Molly's grandma passed away last night. Um, and it's, the news is fresh. But here they are. Here they are. They could have said, you know what, we just need alone time. But what they wanted to do is come along in a body of people who love them and care for them. And the same way that all of us have things going on. Now, I happen to know about that. 
I happen to know that a, a friend of mine, fellow racer out at Bandemir, passed away from injuries sustained in an accident at Bandemir just a day ago. And I've got to visit him in the hospital and pray with his family. But you know what's important is that you know Jesus. You know Jesus in a time like that. His family knows Jesus in a time like that. Eric and their family and their mother and their father, every, they all knew Jesus, and so they all know where they're headed. And so we can come around each other and just support each other in that and pray for each other. This needs to be a place, this body, I don't mean this building, wherever we gather needs to be a place that when you're hurting and when things go on and things happen in your life, this needs to be the body that you press into. The enemy wants to say, why don't you just separate yourself from the flock and just be alone to deal with your hurt? That's not the way we should do it, church. We should gather together and support each other through this. This needs to be a place that you can set aside all those things and just love one another. There's so much division, so much confusion going on in the world right now, and I know that Satan is sowing that, and he is stirring the pot, and he wants us to all think that we're alone, we're isolated, and that is never the case. We are a part of one body. So let's, let's do that. Let's gather together and be the body. Wherever we are, wherever we're calling home for that time, let's gather together and be the body. Let's not put on airs that, oh, I can't share what I'm hurting with other people. I can't share the problems I'm having, my doubts, my hurts, my fears. I can't. I just need to put on a face when I'm here. We should never be like that. I don't want this church to be like that. There's too much of that in the world, and it isolates us. So, shift gears. We'll pray for that more at the end. Um, and if there couldn't be a more awkward segue, um, but it just made me think about it. Uh, um, one of the things that we're, you know, we're selling things, we're giving things away. Um, my office furniture, the whole set, my desk, it's an anointed desk, by the way. 15 years, well, not 15, it's been about 10 years of messages flowing over that desk. The desk, the bookshelves, and the, and the whole office set, I'm going to go, I've made the decision this morning that I'm going to sell it. And I'm going to sell it to put the funds towards buying the best helmet that I can for when I race. So <clears throat> just so you know, that's where it's going. But take a look at it after service if you want. Go see, and if, and if you're interested, let me know. Uh, it's an old, heavy 1950s military metal desk that I've refurbished and painted. So anyway, that's my personal. That seems totally out of place in church. So <laughs> I apologize, but time is short. It's not like I can tell you next weekend when the timing is better. So anyway, all right. Hey, let's get... Let's get going into our message. Let's just, let's just set the atmosphere and settle our hearts. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time together together. I thank you for this body, for this place that you've blessed us with for so much time. We have been able to experience your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your provision and all of the things that you pour out to us. We've been able to share those, to laugh about them, to cry about them, to pray about them. And we've been able to do that in this place that you have given to us for this time. So Father, I pray that those things just continue in the new home that you're leading us to. And that they are amplified in such a way that the whole neighborhood just feels your spirit emanating from that place. And they are drawn to it. 
Help us to be instruments of drawing people to your love and mercy and grace. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right, so we are in the Gospel of Mark. If it's been a while since you've been here, you can go back to our archives through our website or YouTube. There's a channel on YouTube, and you can check out the previous messages and kind of get caught up to where we are. Um, But a, a quick recap, Jesus and his disciples, again, are traveling around the Galilee, And the Gospel of Mark is great because he's just so matter-of-fact, and sometimes we have to expand on things to to be able to see really what's happening. But what happened at the end uh, of last week is that it was time. It was time for Jesus, for the most part, to set aside the miracles and the signs and the preaching and things like that and start his trip to Jerusalem. Where, where ultimately everything will consummate there in Jerusalem. But last week we saw one more time as they're leaving this area of Perea and they're heading on the, the long and kind of uphill arduous path to Jerusalem. The first thing that they do is that they run into a man named Bartimaeus. And the interesting thing about Bartimaeus is he's, he's blind And his identity had just become that of a beggar. He would go out and sit by this well-traveled highway and just kind of sit there and just beg for his existence. That had become his identity. But when Jesus reached out to him and gave him that invitation to come with me, he had no hesitation throwing off. It says he threw off his cloak and jumped up and ran to Jesus. Contrast that with the rich young ruler that we taught about the week before who his identity was tied up in the things that he had. It was tied up in his riches and his prestige and his land and his status, all these things. And he walked away from that invitation from Jesus, sad and heartbroken because he wasn't willing to give that up. And such a contrast right there of what they're willing to give up and what they will receive in return ultimately. So that was last week. Now, now, The section we're going to talk about, we're at the beginning of chapter 11, so if you have your Bibles, you can grab that. Mark 11, we're going to talk about verses 1 through 14, and it's commonly just called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's kind of the the main title that you see, but there's a a subtext, a little sub-thing going on there about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Anybody ever heard a preaching in their whole life about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Anyone? We all have, dozens probably of times. And then anybody ever heard a teaching on Jesus cursing the fig tree? Probably most, if not all of us, have heard something about that at one time or another. And they're commonly taught as two separate things. But the Lord showed me something this week as I was studying for this, how those two things are very, very closely related. In fact, they're kind of inseparable, and I'll talk to you about that. And I hope to show you how there is that thread that helps us to see how they're connected. So let's get right into it. Now, if you're interested, there are parallel accounts. This is one of those, one of those um, moments or events in Jesus' ministry that all four Gospels record. They all, they all record Jesus' life and ministry from a different viewpoint, and so there are things that some talk about that others don't. But this is one of those that it's pretty momentous. So all four Gospels talk about this. So Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12, if you want to look at the other 
gospel accounts. But we're in Mark. So here we are, Mark 11, verse 1, right here on screen. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Okay, so this is where they are. They have left that that region of Perea and Jericho, and they are heading up this path, and they're almost to Jerusalem. It's about a 15-mile journey, 3,000-plus feet of elevation gain. It's kind of a rough travel to go up there, but they're, they're finally almost there, and they come into this region. Now, a couple things. Bethphage, the word Bethphage, as this town is called, literally means, it's an Aramaic name, and it means house of olives. Or not house of olives, house of figs, I'm sorry. House, uh, that's what I do when I don't read my notes. House of unripe figs is what it literally means, Bethphage. And we'll see how that plays in here in just a second. It's the larger of the two towns between Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany, the claim to fame for Bethany, it's the hometown of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So that's, that's just about the only time that you really hear about Bethany. You know, there's another Bethany that's to the east of the Jordan. That's a different Bethany. But let me show you a map of the area that we're kind of talking about today. Super, super childlike map, right? But it tells us a couple things. You see that green line coming in? That's kind of the path. Now, if, if you were following clear out where the path goes, it would go all the way down here and somewhere down by the door, that'd be where Jericho is. So the path goes all the way up here. They come to Bethany and Bethphage. So they're kind of in this area. The whole region there is the Mount of Olives. Okay, it's a pretty large mountain. It's got other names, but that's what we know it by. And then you follow the green path, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. Kidron Valley is that blue line right there. And then you enter Jerusalem directly. Okay, so that's kind of so you can wrap your mind around what it looks like. Now, here's what it looks like today if you're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. It looks like, and sometimes it sounds like it's a mile away or miles away, right? But it's pretty close. So this viewpoint that you're standing at here is looking at Jerusalem, modern Jerusalem, obviously, um, from the, the Mount of Olives, uh, specifically the Garden of Gethsemane area. Now, a couple things to note right here. You can see the big wall. This wall right here, that's part of the original wall, <coughs> and this block area over on the right, and you can't see it in this picture, but you can see right here the remnants of what used to be a gate. Now, that's the east gate. That's the gate that Jesus was going to head down, and actually they went through that gate into Jerusalem. Interesting side note, in about 1440, I think, about 1440 A.D., um, the, the Muslims actually planted a cemetery down in front of that wall and walled up the east gate. They walled that up. And the point was that a prophet, a holy man, can't touch or interact with dead bodies. So they were trying to stop Jesus in his prophesied return by doing that and walling up the gate. It always struck me as odd that a prophet, a Messiah, that they don't I mean, they believe Jesus exists, but he was just a teacher. They don't believe he exists, but they went to an awful lot of work to keep him from coming back, didn't they? It was about 1600, by the way. It's, it's uh, Ottoman Turks that did that. So anyway, that's kind of what it looks like, and so you can get it. So when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is kind of the view that he would have had. All the stuff in the foreground uh, to the right of the temple, that's all 
old Jerusalem and the different things that would have been there. Still there today. You can go and see it. All right, so Mark 11, 2, the next scripture. There, they've come to this region. And Jesus says to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. A lot of people think when he says the village opposite you, he's talking about Jerusalem. But no, he's actually most likely talking about Bethphage. Now, um, there have been all kinds of arguments uh, through the centuries, really, even up until the time of Jesus, they were, they were really rapidly arguing the idea of how the Messiah would arrive. There were some rabbis, Pharisees, and just various theologians argued that if Israel was judged to be worthy, then the prophecy that was spoken in Daniel, Daniel 7.13, where it says the Messiah would arrive coming on the clouds of heaven, the idea would be a powerful conqueror. If Israel was judged worthy when Jesus returned or when the Messiah returned, that's how he'd arrive. Okay, so that's what half of them had in their minds. And then the other half argued, um, maybe it's even the same group of people, but they argued that if Jesus or if the Messiah came back in a more humble manner, came back maybe on the back of a donkey, as Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 9.9 said he would arrive lowly and humble. So depending on how the Messiah returned when he did return, that would kind of give them a clue whether he was going to be uh, finding them worthy or judging them to be unworthy. And so there was all kinds of talk back and forth. Now, they had finally kind of arrived at that consensus, the worthy versus unworthy, in his arrival. Now, when the Scripture says they find an unridden colt, that's very important for what's going on right here. An unridden colt, for one, like we look at the the unblemished and the spotless lamb or the perfect doves that were being sold at the temple for Passover. Um, The idea of an unblemished or an undefiled animal being suitable for holy service. So the idea of a donkey that's never been ridden or a colt that's never been ridden shows that it's been undefiled. It hasn't been broken yet. It's still very much uh, kind of a wild animal. And that gives us a side note that Jesus is able to then, they get this colt that's never been ridden, and they bring it to him, and he's immediately able to sit on it and ride it in, showing his authority over animals and, and, and the whole kingdom. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, adds a line about the colt's mother, and it's the only one that does this. Matthew 21.2 where he says to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. So that's you find that part of it in Matthew, but it's the same situation that's going here. And he's really, he wants the colt because that's what prophecy said he was going to come in on. Mark eleven three. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. So he's saying, tell them that the Lord needs it. They'll loan it to you. And when we're finished, we'll send it back. That's what he's saying. And again, Matthew adds just a little bit more detail. Matthew 21, 4 and 5. Now this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet will be fulfilled. This is Zechariah 9, 9. He's quoting here. 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's clear. When he comes in on this colt, that is a clear declaration that he is the Messiah, that he's coming in on this colt. They would have very well known Zechariah 9.9. This also would have been something that probably triggered a lot of them to remember He's coming on a colt. He's coming humble. Are we being judged to be unworthy? Because that's how the Messiah is arriving. And then the other half probably refused to believe he was the Messiah because they had spent their whole lives trying to make sure Israel was judged worthy. So again, you have this thing where what we're seeing here fulfills this part of Scripture, but I refuse to believe it because if I believe he's the Messiah coming on a donkey... I also have to believe that we've been judged unworthy. They didn't want, nobody wants to believe that. So they were still holding out hope that he was not the Messiah, many of them were, and that they still had this, this warring, powerful Messiah to come. They're still waiting for that today. Mark 11, 4 and 5. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? It's an unusual place for a colt to be. In that culture, in that society, you would take not only to protect it from thieves, but from wolves and animals. You wouldn't tie up your donkey and your colt outside in the street. You would bring them into a courtyard or into the farm. You would bring them somewhere safe. The fact that it was sitting out there in the street for them to find is significant It either means the Spirit spoke to the owners and said, leave it out there, the Lord's going to need it. Or somebody had gone ahead and and planned this. We don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us. I like to think that the Spirit prompted them to do that. But here's their answer, Mark 11, 6. And they told him, just as Jesus had said, and they gave him permission. Okay, So they take this colt. Mark 11, 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now again, this was absolutely to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Absolutely. Doing that is an intentional act on Jesus' part, saying, I am fulfilling that prophecy by doing this, and I'm going to ride into town. Because if you know anything about what we've been teaching, Jesus the servant Messiah, is there any way he would have ridden into town while his disciples walked? Probably not ever would he do that. This is a very deliberate act on his part. So, again, in the way of Mark, they brought the colt to Jesus, put their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And then the very next thing, Mark eleven eight, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. So he's just leaving that Mount of Olives area through the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that pathway down there, and he's entering into the east gate of Jerusalem, and as he approaches, they're laying down their cloaks. Now, that wasn't an unheard of thing. Sometimes that's, for a lot of us, that's the only time we ever hear of people laying their cloaks down in front of Jesus as he comes in. And it was the only time it happened to Jesus, but it was a custom that was very, very common in that culture. Anytime that there was an anointed king or a triumphant king entering a, a town or a city, they would do that. It's very common. In fact, going all the way back, 2 Kings 9.13, it 
It says, Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. That's from 2 Kings 9. We also see this happening uh, in the book of Esther with Mordecai. They do that. Uh, they do it with King Xerxes when he arrives. So we see different things like that. So that idea of setting down their cloaks to pave the way for, a, for an entering king is very common. And again, that would have been yet another sign that the people are recognizing that Jesus is the king who's returned. That word branches, by the way, where it says they spread leafy branches, I always in my mind just picture growing up here in Colorado, big pile of branches being set on the ground. It's more like a trap than, a, than paving, right? Trying to walk through without falling down and tripping. But actually that word branches in the Greek is stoibus, and it literally means just the soft leafy parts. So they were taking down branches and pulling off the soft leafy bed to kind of just make the road soft. We commonly just assume that they were palm branches, and they may have been, but we don't know that for sure from the definition there. Mark 11, 9, 10. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. How many of us have sang that? Just saying that out loud so many times. It is such a great... Um, it's such a great tribute to our Lord and Savior. And that word Hosanna literally in the Hebrew means save us. That's what it means, save us. So they're seeing him approach and he's coming in and he's riding on the back of a donkey and they are thinking in their minds, we have been judged unworthy because here comes the Messiah, the kings. They recognize him as the king. They're laying down cloaks. They're laying down branches. Here's the king. Zechariah 9.9 tells us that if we're judged unworthy, or at least that's what they had assumed, that he would come humbly. So here he comes humbly. We're judged unworthy. We're going to cry out, save us. That's exactly what they're doing here. They're crying out, save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They are acknowledging right then and there that Jesus approaching is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant given all that time ago. If you don't know anything about what that is, the Davidic covenant was one of the original covenants that God made with David. That's from 2 Samuel. I'll read it to you. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13 talks specifically. And this is the Lord speaking to David. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's known as the Davidic covenant. And when the crowd cries out, save us, save us. And they're saying, save us, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. They're knowing, they're acknowledging, the whole crowd is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the fulfillment of that covenant with David. Can you imagine the atmosphere? Put yourself there. Can you imagine cutting branches and laying them out? You're laying cloaks. Everybody's chanting and singing, Hosanna. It would be, talk about a party atmosphere. How incredible would that be? It would be amazing. Matthew 21, 
10 and 11 says just a little bit more detail. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. This wasn't just a few people, a few random people that happened to be there. All the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this crowd, they're recognizing this is Jesus, the prophet, the one who's been traveling around praying. We now see him arriving, fulfillment of that Davidic covenant, fulfillment of everything that we have heard about the Messiah returning. It's about to get real here, right? Wouldn't you be thinking that? If you're in the crowd, what's going to happen? This is going to be awesome. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John, in their Gospels, they kind of they kind of skip to what we call the good part. Skip to the good part. Skip to the action. So they kind of do that. But Mark, and Mark's the only gospel that does this, he adds a little detail that really is significant. Let's look at it. Mark 11, 11. Now remember, jubilant crowd. People are going crazy. The Messiah has returned. Mark eleven eleven, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple area. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Wah, wah, wah. Like, how anticlimactic would that be? Imagine you're in the crowd, and you're chanting, and you've thrown down your cloak, and you've cut branches, and Jesus comes in and looks around at the temple and goes, Ah, oh, it's late. Let's go home. And they all just leave. They all just go back the way they came. How would you feel about that? That would be, yeah, I mean, that would be just that image of what's going on there. Now, again, Mark's the only of the four Gospels to add that detail that Jesus left after surveying the temple. The others skip directly to Jesus purging the temple and and preaching and, and cleansing and all these sorts of things that he does. That word late, though, it says since it's already late, it's not two in the afternoon. That word late translates as opse, and it literally means in the Greek, late in the evening. So all the booths were closed, all the vendors, those were closed, people had gone home. The only people that were around were the people that were there to see Jesus. Now think about this. Why didn't, if you were Jesus and you were trying to make this triumphal entry and trying to make your point and the Messiah has returned, wouldn't you just go, guys, it's late. Let's do this in the morning, not tonight. Why do you think he went in so late? And I tell you, he wasn't surprised when he arrived and everything was closed down and it was late. He didn't go, oh man, I should have Googled what time they were open till. They're closed. Let's go home, do it tomorrow. It was all very intentional. But why do you think? Why do you think he would have done it like that? Malachi, Malachi 3.1, again, prophecy says that the Lord will come suddenly into his temple and begin the purging and refining process. So that's what everybody expected. They expected that. And I think that's why Jesus came in early and then left. He knew that that purging was about to happen. He knew that the temple that he had grown up having having so much reverence for. Remember, at 12 years old, he's preaching in the temple. He's got a lot of um, nostalgia for that temple. The whole nation of Israel had so much national pride in the temple. 
That was, that was very important to him. It was the symbol of a holy and chosen Israel. It was, it was such a big thing to them, the people of that culture. And Jesus knew that this was the last time that he was going to see it the way that it was. And not for a bad reason, often for a good reason. We know that when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple veil is torn. And that symbol, the temple of the separation from God and his people, was going to be torn forever. And he knew that. So I think it was a nostalgic trip. It wasn't about seeing the people or the money lenders or anything. It was a trip. Jesus said, I'm going to make my entry and I want to see this one last time before things change forever. Jesus himself would very soon, now this is from Matthew, would prophesy about the temple's destruction. Matthew 24, 1-2. Jesus left the temple area and was going on his way when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. But he responded and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And we know that happens figuratively at his death on the cross. But this is that proverbial one last look. He just wants to see it in the way that it is. Now, Jesus and his disciples then, they leave the temple area and they return back up to the Mount of Olives to rest. Now, here's where we have the tie-in to the second part of this story. And it might seem that it's unrelated to what we just witnessed, But if you think about it in context, like I urge you always to do with Scripture, think about it in context. I think you'll see where it's tied in. Mark 11, 3. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark 11, 2. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Okay, so they go back to the Bethany area. They spend the night. They get up in the morning. They're going to head back to Jerusalem. Okay, but he's hungry. Jesus is hungry. Mark eleven thirteen. seeing from a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Okay, seems very straightforward. He sees a tree, it's got leaves, so I wonder if it's got any figs. I'll go check it out. Oh, it's not the season for figs. There are no figs there. Now, Let's look at what's happening here. Scripture tells us right there that we just read it, it's not the season for figs. So what's the problem? When a fig tree matures, so a fig tree takes about three years to mature, at least to bear fruit, from when it is planted. And it grows leaves along with the fruit. So when it's season, and it's probably a couple months early for fig tree season, But he looks over and he sees this fig tree and it's got leaves and the leaves only come out when it's bearing fruit. So he sees this fig tree saying, there is the promise of food. There's the promise of fruit. But he gets to the fig tree and there's no fruit. So his response, he says to it, Mark 11, 14, and he speaks to the tree and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Mark just adds that little part. His disciples were listening. And we'll find in another chapter very soon coming, they ask him, so like, Jesus, what was that all about? And he explains it to them. But let me explain it to you right now. 
it seems odd, doesn't it, that Jesus would curse a fig tree for not bearing fruit when it wasn't fig season anyway. Doesn't it seem weird? Anybody ever look at that and go, what's happening here? Because it doesn't make sense, right? Until you realize that figs from practically from the beginning of Hebrew culture have been seen as a metaphor for the Jewish nation. If we look at figs as a metaphor for the Jewish nation, it starts to make sense. Hosea 9.10, and there's tons of them. Hosea 9.10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. It's a symbol of a ripe and an abundant fig tree bearing fruit is a symbol of the nation of Israel bearing fruit. So here's what we have. If you haven't put it together kind of in your mind yet, Jesus is not cursing the tree because it doesn't have fruit. He's cursing the tree because it promises to have fruit, but it doesn't. You hear what I'm saying? Because it's got leaves. Leaves are the promise of fruit. Leaves are the look of fruit. Everything about fruit looks right with that tree. It's inviting. But when you get there, there's no fruit. Just like the nation of Israel. The fruitless fig tree tells us about, it just reminds us about all these points during Jesus' ministry when people are called to produce fruit. It's not enough to just look like you can produce fruit or to look like you are producing fruit. You have to produce fruit. Amen. Amen. And that's why Jesus is cursing the fig tree, saying, you promised me fruit. I got here expecting fruit. You're all about fruit. There's no fruit. And that's the metaphor for Israel, for the Jews, that he's going to enter into Jerusalem and immediately find all these centuries of God's blessing and opportunities for you to produce fruit. Where's the fruit? This is exactly what we see happening when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Remember back when Jesus was getting baptized, and if you don't remember, I'll read it to you. When Jesus was getting baptized, John the Baptist calls out the Pharisees. If you remember what he said, Matthew 3, 8 through 10, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance and do not assume that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, Jesus later echoes that same statement himself in Matthew 7. Jesus came to Jerusalem on the back of that colt, knowing full well what he would find. Maybe the human part of him was hoping against hope that I'm going to get there and there's going to be some change from what I know to be true. Maybe he's hoping for that, but he comes in knowing that. All of the religious pomp and circumstance and trappings and temple and priests and and Pharisees and all these things, all the trappings of fruit with no fruit. It's barren and it's dead. And that's what grieves his heart. Now, 600 years before this, before this episode that we're looking at today, the prophet Jeremiah spoke God's warning to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 2, 20, 21. 
For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your restraints, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every leafy tree you have laid down as a prostitute. Yet I planted you as a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? That was a warning 600 years ago prior to that. And they had done nothing about heeding that warning and producing fruit. See, the nation of Israel was meant to be God's carrier of the covenant, God's chosen people, but they failed to bear fruit despite the prophets warning them for centuries. They failed to bear fruit. I don't even think they knew quite what fruit was, really. But then the Gentiles were called to expand that covenant into all the nations. Here's the problem, though. Because we can sit here and we can say, oh, the nation of Israel, they had so many warnings and so many chances, and man, they just blew it. And those guys, weren't those guys thick-headed? Thank goodness that now that covenant was opened up into the Gentiles, and now we can help be messengers of God's word. Now we can do that. But here's the problem. And here's how I want to finish this out. Today, we, and I say we, the body of Christ, His church, are in danger of falling into that very same trap. That very same trap of all the trappings of fruit without fruit. All of the talk, but none of the action. All of the judgment, but none of the love. How about all of the freedom, but none of the responsibility. We are in danger. Proverbs 11 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And then bookend that with Revelation 22 that says, in heaven the tree of life will bear fruit year-round, and the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. <coughs> the leaves of the tree will be for healing of the nations. That's us. And we call heaven to earth so many times. I hear so many worship songs. I see people praying, bring heaven to earth. Let's bring heaven to earth on earth as it is in heaven. We say this over and over and over that we want that. If that's what we want, we should want to be instruments of bearing fruit and healing the nations, not dividing the nations, healing the nations. You want more heaven on earth? Let's bear fruit. Let's bear fruit. Let's just don't look like we bear fruit. Let's do it. I look in the world today. I'm watching the news this morning. And there's so many current events. And I tell you, if you want a church that preaches current events, we're not it. Because the Lord told me, preach my word. Preach my word and my word alone. And his Holy Spirit will speak to you about how his word applies to what's going on in the world. That's not my calling. But there's so much confusion. There's so much confusion. And I look at things like school shootings. I look at things like, like people attacking Supreme Court justices for decisions. People attacking politicians, no matter what side they're on. All of this. And it's because people don't feel like they belong to anything. We had a, I'm just going to say this flat out, we had um, yesterday or day before, we had somebody leave a review on our church, on our Google page. 
Okay? Happens all the time. Seems kind of innocuous, right? Except this Google review said, this cult wants to control me, and this cult wants to do this and that. And calling that, not us specifically, this person had never been here, but calling the church in general a cult who just wants to control people. And then when we looked into who that person was, they are a member of the Satanic Temple here in Littleton. Here in Littleton. And you know what the Lord spoke to me? You can be angry at her for doing that, but she's only doing that because she has nowhere else that will accept her. The body of Christ has become one that if you come in and you're not dressed right, if you don't say the right things, if you don't smell the right way, if you don't, if you don't speak the language, you're going to be uncomfortable here. And that drives people to find their identity somewhere else. Because other areas are more acceptable. Other places won't judge them. The church has become not only barren of fruit to a large extent, but we've become judgmental. We've become the very Pharisees that we spend so much time mocking in many ways through Scripture about their hard hearts and about their law. We are in danger of becoming that as a church. I just want to ask you, seek the Holy Spirit as we pray, as we close this up. Seek the Holy Spirit on what you are doing in your life that's bearing fruit. And if there's nothing, find a way. And I'm not saying you just figure it out. Ask Him, how do I bear fruit in my life? Are there places where I'm being judgmental, where I'm literally taking the fruit you have given in me and planted in me, and I'm killing it with my judgment? That's between you and the Lord to pray. The last scripture I want to share with you, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus says this when he's talking. They're asking him, how do we pray? And he says this, pray then in this way. You can join me if you know it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Church, that's, that should be our prayer. Forgiveness and love and inclusiveness to everybody, no matter where they are. Because this is his church. This isn't our church. This is his church. In other words, if we're going to bear good fruit, we need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, help us to see where we are being an obstacle to people knowing you. Help us to see where we are not bearing fruit in our lives. Help us to see those things that are an obstacle to us drawing closer to you and to others drawing closer to you. Father, show me those things where I am showing judgment to the world and not mercy. Where I am being darkness in my life rather than the light. Lord, show me those things. And I repent right now of anything that I have done that does not give you glory, that does not bear fruit because you have given me that purpose to bear fruit and to call those to you. So, Father, help me. That's what we all want. 
We thank you for your blessings in our lives, everything that we have, the gifts that you have given us, our salvation, our lives, the very blood in our veins. You have given us that as a gift. Lord, help us to use that gift in the way that you have ordained. Father, I repent of anything I have done to partner with the schemes of the enemy to stir dissension, to stir doubt, to make your body seem anything less than what you intended it to be. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take communion together now. At the crosses, as always, we have juice, and you can serve yourself there if you'd like. Uh, Pastor Gabe and I will be up front here serving wine. If you need prayer, though, sometimes those things in our life that we know there's something there, we know something's just not quite right, but maybe we don't know what it is. We have a prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a lanyard. They will pray with you and just help you walk through those steps of seeing what's there because seeing it, the enemy wants to hide it. Once you know it's there, now you can pray about it. You can eliminate it. Sometimes we just don't even know it's there. We do things in our lives that we're totally unaware of. Let's go through life awake, not woke, awake. The enemy wants to steal that word from us too. I want us to go through life awake and intentional about the things we do and the things we say that have consequences in the kingdom. Let's not be blind to that. When you are ready, let's move about and you can take communion worship with us. Um, I just love the way worship is today. It just sings to my heart. So maybe you'll stick around and do that. When everything is finished, go out into the foyer, look at our free stuff out there. If there's anything that you would like to have in your home, ask us. Don't be shy. Ask, and maybe you can have that. We want it to go someplace where it matters. Um, But let's just do that and respond to worship. Amen? Thank you, guys.